Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. We have brand new Facebook and Instagram pages under Grading the Nutmeg. Please follow us and you'll get behind the scenes photos, sneak peeks of new content, and info on how to purchase our new merchandise. In yesterday's New York Times, journalist Adam Mahoney describes the Great Migration as a time when millions of black people left the South to escape segregation, servitude, and lynching, and went north in search of jobs and stable housing. In today's episode, we'll discuss Hartford and the Great Migration. Connecticut Explored's book, African American Connecticut Explored, published by Wesleyan University Press, has just celebrated its 10th anniversary. My guest today, Dr. Stacy Close, served as one of the principal authors for this groundbreaking volume of essays that illuminate the long arc of Black history in Connecticut. A native of Georgia, Dr. Close has worked in higher education for more than 25 years. A professor of African-American history at Eastern Connecticut State University, Close received his Ph.D. and M.A. from Ohio State University and B.A. from Albany State College, a historically black college in Georgia. He is currently completing work entitled Black Hartford Freedom Struggle, 1915-1970. to Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Stacy. when does the Great Migration happen, and how did Hartford attract really new black residents? Hartford is, is part of a, a Great Migration that really stirs the nation during the period of, of, of World War I, right around 1914. It's part of a larger overall movement of migrations that included uh, some six million people uh, from the South who would, who would head north. And so Connecticut is a part of that, that movement. Uh, that occurred. And what did Hartford do to attract them? I think they had a couple different ways that they were hoping to reach them. Well, the the, 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 the movement to, to, to Hartford is, is driven in part by economics. There's also uh, religious implications as well that play a role, as well as some of the things that the uh, scholar from the New York Times mentioned in terms of issues of, of, of lynching and violence that was so prevalent in the South that helped to push this movement northward. Now, Connecticut's migration is directly tied to what is happening in Connecticut's tobacco fields during World War I, where a number of workers uh, who are Lithuanian, Polish, and Russian are leaving Connecticut and heading back home to uh, support their home country during the war. And there's a labor shortage here in Connecticut as far as tobacco work. And so the Connecticut Tobacco Leaf Growers Association begins to look uh, for a way to fill that that void of workers. One of the first things they do that turns out not to be uh, a very good idea is they try to go to New York and sign up 200 women from New York to come and work tobacco. That will prove to be inefficient and an utter failure in terms of getting people who want to work in the uh, tobacco fields and tobacco barns uh, of Connecticut. So what happens is that one of the leaders of the Connecticut Tobacco League Growers Association, he decides, Marcus L. Floyd, to uh, contact the uh, National Urban League. And the National Urban League then turns around and contacts historically black colleges uh, and their presidents. 
and one of the first black college presidents to sign up students to work in the Connecticut tobacco fields is the president of Morehouse College, John Hope. And John Hope actually boards a train and rides northward during the World War I period to sign up 20 or so of his students from Morehouse to work tobacco. And it's a concerted effort to target these young students because they were going to work, earn money to help pay tuition, and then they would return. But what happens in the process is that behind them, word begins to spread about tobacco work opportunities. Word spreads by word of mouth, but there are also some recruitment efforts by Connecticut's Tobacco League Growers Association. And the areas that they recruit the hardest are areas of Southwest Georgia, and they also recruit portions of North Florida. And by North Florida, I mean the Quincy, Florida area. And these are areas where you have some tobacco already being grown. And if you're talking about the areas of Southwest Georgia, one of the areas that is recruited very hard is the area of Sumter County, Georgia. And historians of, of the South know that that is the, the area that's the birthplace for former President uh, Jimmy Carter. And so the workers there are enticed by economic opportunity. But just like workers that go to Cleveland or Chicago or Detroit, they're also pulled by what they refer to as this religious impetus. And what I mean by religious impetus is that there is this, this belief that this call to come north is like a um, second exodus for blacks, where they have an opportunity to be free, and free in the sense as the uh, Israelites of old were, were freed from Egyptian bondage. And so religion plays a part in it, economics plays a part in it, better education for children play a part in this migration. And so Hartford uh, is perceived of as a place where people can get that freedom that they're looking for. But that economic impetus is something that really works for people who, in some cases, already know about tobacco work and the rigors of tobacco work, both men and women, in terms of, of, of working. What about other black immigrants that we have, like from the West Indies or Cape Verde? What, what you'll find as far as the Caribbean migration or immigration, there's also an economic impetus that's driven, particularly during World War II. And though the bulk of the, the wave of immigrants from the Caribbean begins during World War II, you can still find a Caribbean influence even do, during what we call the Great Migration for African Americans. And if you look very closely at some of the churches in Hartford, you'll see that. You'll see that uh, when you look at St. Monica's Episcopal Church now, the person who was the pastor of that church uh, was from Jamaica. When you look at places like Metropolitan AME Zion Church, during the heart of the Great Migration, their pastor was, was from the Caribbean. So there were already Caribbean, small numbers of Caribbean people coming. Uh, to be part of this migration as well. And it would even impact, to an extent, the development among Caribbean people and among people from the South, uh, the uh, development of the movement of uh, Marcus Garvey in the region as well. So I'm glad you mentioned black churches because they were really one of the institutions that welcomed people when they got here or assisted them. What was that role of the black churches and of new black churches that were formed? <laughs> Well, one of the things you find as far as migrants are concerned, while there are some black churches that are very welcoming, there are some tensions that emerge as well uh, with some black church leaders. And so where the, when the tensions do emerge, there are people from the America's Georgia area, for example, and Southwest Georgia area, they decide to build and develop churches 
more in the style of the way they worship in Southwest Georgia. And one of the most prominent churches that is a very good example of this is what is now Mount Olive Church. Uh, but during the Great Migration, it developed as Mount Olive Baptist Church, uh, led by Reverend Good Clark. And the same can be said for Mount Calvary Baptist Church, that is uh, now in the same area where Mount Olive is in the north end of Hartford. These were churches developed by transplanted people from the south who wanted worship services similar to what they had at home, where they could worship without being criticized for how they dressed or whether or not they chewed tobacco, some things like that, that I don't really find too um, troublesome, but things of that nature. And they got to sing in common meter and short meter. They got to clap and worship as, as they wanted to. But it's also this migration uh, as far as churches that brings to Hartford people who are part of the Holiness Pentecostal movement that is uh, among black churches in America now, still the largest and most rapidly growing church congregations. And so the Church of God, Church of God in Christ, they all emerge during this period of, of development. But in terms of established churches, there were some established churches that will welcome um, migrants into their congregations. And uh, one of the ones that does is uh, Union Baptist Church in Hartford. And part of the reason that it does is because of leadership. By the time the migration is under full swing in Connecticut, Union Baptist Church has one minister who was born in Louisiana, but had pastored a church in Birmingham, Alabama called the 16th Street Baptist Church. Once he leaves, he is replaced by another pastor from the Florence, South Carolina area, uh, the Reverend Dr. John Jackson. And he is a migrant. And he, he is able to connect with people who migrate from the South. And you can see amongst the church roles, you can see people from Virginia, you see people from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and they feel that connectedness in the similar way that people from Mount Olive and also um, Mount Calvary felt connected to their home churches as well. You wrote a really fantastic feature article in a issue of Connecticut Explored magazine called Southern Blacks Transform Connecticut, and that link will be in our show notes. But in that article, you mentioned the fact that although people have heard about opportunities in agriculture and tobacco, they're still looking for other jobs. But there are so many well-known industries like coal or the insurance industry that do not provide jobs for African Americans as a rule. Talk a little bit about other kinds of jobs that they could find. Mm -hmm. for, for a small number of African Americans, they find slight inroads into large corporations, but usually at the lowest, lowest rungs. They may be involved in jobs that, are, that have custodial duties or jobs where which they are chauffeurs for some of the top elites and companies. But there are companies who learn about the, the strong work ethic of people from the tobacco fields and are willing to open uh, their doors to workers from the South, particularly black workers. Companies like the Rubber Company in Hartford, the uh, Lumber Yard in Hartford is able to do so. And people also during the wintertime can get occupations or jobs uh, with snow removal in terms of their work. Now, in terms of other things uh, like domestic work, uh, there are domestic work opportunities that do open up. And for African-American women who aren't working 
in tobacco, their best avenue is domestic work for a daily, daily, daily opportunity to work. Things will change dramatically with the coming of World War II, though, where labor shortages during World War II requires the opening of jobs at a very, very large rate to a number of people in the country in order to win the war. And so there's a, a movement to do that. I think the other thing I thought is interesting about this part of the Great Migration is when they get there, they do start small businesses. Mm-hmm. And we just, la- I think last year celebrated, unfortunately, or commemorated, I should say, the Tulsa riot. But that was such a clear black business corridor. And I think a lot of big cities had black businesses in a, in a corridor in a, or in neighborhoods. What about those small businesses that people started? Well, one of the things that migrants do, they are part of a, um, a South that is heavily segregated. And so they depend on themselves a lot in order to build, to build businesses. And many of the people who are migrants, uh, they have been influenced by the ideas of, of Booker T. Washington to build businesses and to, to uplift yourself. And in fact, Washington actually had a chapter of his National Negro Business League in Hartford. And that National Negro Business League not only met locally, but it also encouraged blacks to build and establish businesses, whether it be barbershops, bookstores, and other store other stores around the uh, around the city and beauty, they do beauty parlors interested me too because they're mm-hmm. advertising in the city directories as ha- featuring process like a hair processing products that would appeal to black buyers yeah beauty shops barber shops they are uh, some of the um, the lifebloods of the black community in part because everyone goes there regardless of your your status or your class so for the small number of physicians who are in Hartford, they go to the same barbershops as people who are tobacco workers. Uh, the same thing for wives of the physicians. They go to the same beauty parlors as women who are not part of the upper crust in the black community. And they provide an opening and an opportunity. Now, along with these beauty parlors, you'll also find that there are also quite a number of grocery stores as well. Uh, that transplanted people build and develop. And if you're talking about the Hartford area, you're going to find small numbers of these grocery stores situated in the um, Bellevue Square area, or Bellevue Square area in the 40s, but along Bellevue Street uh, in the period of World War I. And what they do is they offer the same kind of food that you would get in Georgia or Alabama. Uh, So you would get your your black-eyed peas, you would get your canned food brought uh, directly in some cases from the South, and establishing that, that, that age-old connection that existed. Uh, you'll also have um, the establishment of a few restaurants, too. Uh, you have people like former judge and attorney Bosch Barlow's family, not only opening a, a, a restaurant, but also a, a billiard parlor as well, and allowing for families to come and not only purchase food, but if you have men who want to um, engage in playing games, they can as well. Uh, one of the biggest businesses that really grows during the period is one of housing. Uh, and that's because of the housing crunch and housing shortage, where a number of black families are basically crowded into one region uh, of the city. And so to deal with that, what black families do, they'll sometimes buy an apartment 
larger than they really need, and then rent out space, and then earn extra money by basically running little, these little small boarding houses. Mm-hmm. Now, some boarding houses um, are larger than others. There is one boarding house that becomes known as the Parish Hotel, uh, run by the, um, the, the family of Tom Parish. And Tom Parish would go on to uh, actually run a garage and a gasoline station at the corner of Main Street and Pavilion Street in Hartford. And it would be sort of the stop and the place in the 50s and 60s. But his family had already been in business before he came of age. You know, we're, we're talking about that period during World War I when every, you know, every place needed labor. And certainly the tobacco industry as well as manufacturing companies needed labor. And so that seemed like a, a clear connection. And then we go into the 1920s, which are actually you know, pretty good. They're known as the Roaring Twenties, and they're pretty good. But how did the Great Depression really affect this community? Well, the, the Great Depression will cause not only a um, massive job loss, but it also, um, in terms of just sheer unemployment, if you're talking about African Americans nationwide, you can find cities where the unemployment rate is as high as uh, 50% in some cases, of people who really want to work. And you could find that same kind of unemployment crunch present in the greater Hartford region, where people just didn't have work. And you actually had to find something to do. And part of that something to do would eventually be, for some people, uh, the New Deal programs. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program would touch directly on the lives of some black people in the greater Hartford region. They may have found some work with the CCC. There were also uh, programs whereby which African Americans could become part of programs where they produce shows and musicals, uh, where they could make a little money doing that. And they would hold performances uh, right around 1938 at what was called The Shell at Bushnell Park. And there was singing, there was dancing, there were skits. And also you find that theater became big in the black community. And so the Charles S. Gilpin players and others uh, would be part of uh, Hartford's world. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. Online oral histories and the digitization of historical sources and maps are just a few of the ways that historic preservation has changed in the digital age. In our spring issue, explore Connecticut through 3D imaging, LIDAR, and ground-penetrating radar. Discover how archaeologists use cutting-edge technology to dig deep into Connecticut's past and how digital scanning brings a new London landmark to new audiences. Plus, learn about the preservation of Connecticut churches through 3D scanning in our photo essay. You won't want to miss this issue of CT Explored. Subscribe today at ctexplored.org slash subscribe. Praised as an ambitious and insightful book, African American Connecticut Explored is the first collection to delve into the African American experience in Connecticut from the earliest years of the state's colonization into the 20th century. Celebrating its 10th year of publication, this award-winning book is used in schools across the state and prominently features the voices of Connecticut's African Americans through its 50 essays. Explore more about the Black Governors of Connecticut, prominent Black abolitionists, the 29th Regiment of Colored Volunteers in the Civil War, and even baseball great Jackie Robinson by purchasing your copy. Published by Wesleyan University Press, this book represents the collaborative effort of Connecticut Explored and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture with support from the State Historic Preservation Office and Connecticut's Freedom Trail. Copies are available 
at Wesleyan University Press. I know that Hartford is certainly not lagging behind in things like the advocacy for better working conditions and less discrimination, and the women are powerhouses. Could you talk a little bit about the founding of the NAACP chapter in Hartford? Sure. The name really to remember in terms of founding the NAACP is Mary Townsend Seymour. She wasn't the first president of the Greater Hartford NAACP that belonged to William Bell, who was a clerk at a local uh, insurance firm. But Mary Townsend Seymour was the voice that really brought the NAACP to life because it was she who contacted W.E.B. Du Bois at the national office and told him that there were some problems brewing in, in Hartford. And those problems brewing, she told him, revolved around possible segregation of students um, in the Hartford school system. She reported to him that there was seemed to be a movement to segregate students, just students specifically from the South, in terms of its school system. And there was some discussion that these students might be forced to go to school in the evening to keep them away from the bulk of the student population. And so she asked Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, uh, and other leaders from the NWCB to come to town. And they did. And there was a big meeting at uh, the uh, Center Church in Hartford where they brought the issues forward. And local leaders declared that there was no such thing in mind, but the very beginning of the NAACP begins there in 1917. And she becomes the first vice president of the local NAACP branch. But she is not one to um, be quiet at all because she not only protests for the right for the word Negro to be capitalized anytime it's mentioned in the newspaper. She also protests in terms of the treatment of African-American soldiers during World War I. And she was a consistent voice that was on the scene in, in the greater Hartford region. And a, a titan, I like to tell my students. Oh, a titan is right. You know, now we've, people of all kinds, we you know, struggled during that Great Depression. And then World War II hits, and there's so much factory work. How do African Americans respond to that, or are they able to get any new opportunities? There, there are new opportunities that emerge during this period in time, and it emerges because there's an active voice urging for opportunity. The NAACP makes the argument for opportunity to work. In a number of cases, it does come. Um, you also find that the military itself will also begin to um, draft and bring in African Americans from the city into its numbers. Probably the more, most well-known of those, of those folks are people who are part of the, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. And one of the um, first members of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen is, is Lemuel Custis. And Lemuel Custis was a, um, at the time, he was actually a, a Hartford police officer. Oh. And he actually already knew how to fly before he joined the American Air Corps. That's kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, he had That's taken, not a part of a policeman's normal everyday he had job. Taken, he had taken flight lessons out at Bradley Field. And so when he became part of that first wave of airmen in Tuskegee, he knew something about flying. But what he really wanted to be was a teacher because he was one of those people who had attended Howard University and he had a degree, I believe it's in, in, in chemistry, and he wanted to teach in the, the Hartford public school system. This is uh, in, in, in the 30s. But Hartford wasn't really uh, 
quite ready uh, to hire an African-American man as a teacher. Uh, they had hired an African-American female, C. Edith Taylor, uh, in 1929, but it would take a, uh, a few years before they actually hired an African-American man. But for Lemuel Custis, uh, he would um, join the Air Corps, uh, reach the rank, initiate a lieutenant, and he would fly more than 80 combat missions wow. as part of the, of the famous Tuskegee um, Airmen Red Tails, protecting heavy bombers and helping influence other uh, pilots as well. But he was, wouldn't be the only Tuskegee Airmen from, from the greater Hartford area. There would be others as well. I wonder how you feel that the Great Migration has affected subsequent generations here in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that it will do, it still helps to pull in people from the South throughout the uh, late 50s, 60s, and 70s because people heard that there was opportunity. They heard there was opportunity at Pratt & Whitney. They heard there was opportunity to other places where you could make a, a, a sizable income, take care of your families. And people heard about educational opportunities and what children and students had done who had completed or graduated from those schools uh, here. Because in terms of African Americans who were part of this period of great migration, if they were interested in higher education, they were often told about uh, the gift of HBCUs back home. Um, they talked about what Howard University had done for them. They talked about what Fish University had done for them, Johnson C. Smith in North Carolina and others. And so there's still this connection to HBCUs that exist. But in the period that comes later, and what I mean by later, in the 90s, in the 2000s, and in the present decade, there is a, um, there is a reverse migration, some people would say where people are deciding to finish off their careers in the greater Hartford region and then migrate back to uh, Georgia, particularly places like the Atlanta area or the North Carolina or someplace in South Carolina, and in essence, make that return home. And it does have an impact on the changing political landscape of the South in terms of the number of people who are are returning. And it has a change in terms of just impacting politics. And I think we saw that in one of the um, last great waves of elections in Georgia in particular. And do you think because families have kept those connections to like grandparents, visiting grandparents in the South, are there younger people that are moving back to the South from the North too? There are. There are. People hear about the opportunities. They hear about the weather. Uh, <laughs> they, they hear about the uh, cost of living. And there is this, this move uh, that, that happens and continues to happen. With that, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today, Stacy. We have a lot of material on our website that you thank can you. Uh, read up on, several articles by Stacy. Let me give you some information on that. I want to thank him as our guest today. You can read his feature story, as I mentioned, Southern Blacks Transform Connecticut from the print version of Connecticut Explored by going to our website at ctexplore.org and searching for his name. We have many more magazine articles as well as podcasts on Black history available under the Topics tab at the top of the website, all available to read or listen to for free. 
Was your family part of the Great Migration? Be sure to listen to Grading the Nutmeg episode 127 to find out how to put your family's history together for future generations with Black family historians Jill Marie Snyder and Hartford's Oris Jenkins. Want to show your support of Grading the Nutmeg? Make a $250 donation and we'll send you our brand new Grading the Nutmeg t-shirt. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. Thanks for listening. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.